In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Hulakwi. And I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll be talking about on Monday's show is... Ecce Homo by Frederick Nietzsche. Ecce Homo, this is one of the last works of Nietzsche, and it is a autobiography. I didn't actually know of the book, and the book I'll be talking about today, there was some excerpts from it that made me interested to actually check it out and read it in full. And so that brings us to the book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about today, and it is a very heavy book, even um, when I was thinking of discussing it all week and uh, today, I felt a a sort of pressure in the sense that it's such a sensitive topic and such an important topic that I always want to be responsible of what I share and, and provide something that I think is of value. But here, because of how delicate and sensitive it is, I realized I felt more of an anxiety in discussing this. And so let me, without building it up too much, say what the book is and then get into it, and I can tell you more about that. So the the book that I'll be talking about today is How Not to Kill Yourself by Clancy Martin. How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind. So uh, the, the title itself is, is quite triggering for many people or can be because... It's talking about killing yourself. It's saying how not to kill yourself. And the book is by Clancy Martin, who himself um, shares throughout the book his struggles, as it says, a portrait of the suicidal mind, his own struggles of having suicidal thoughts throughout his life. He shares from early in his childhood those first memories of having suicidal thoughts, and even he made many suicidal attempts throughout his life, and he discusses those throughout the book and then also pulls on uh, other people's experiences, people who are both experts in the field, but also many people who have experienced suicidal thinking, some who completed suicide, others who attempted and survived. He also shares thoughts from philosophers related to the topic. That's why uh, Nietzsche was in the book, also uh, the Danish uh, philosopher Søren Kierkegaard is in the book as well and some of his thoughts and uh, it's really a, a very intense read and one that I wondered even you know he says that he wrote the book to actually persuade people not to take their lives to to give this insight into his own experience and I think it can definitely uh, have that effect for many people it's just there's so much of course discussion a book on suicide about suicide that there is a heaviness to it. So I, I'm glad I read the book. I bought it uh, a few months ago and saw it. And uh, even for me, the the title and just the theme felt heavy. And so got to read it this week. Uh, 
and I would recommend it, but I think be cautious if you yourself deal with suicide or suicidal thinking. It could be very helpful for you, but I think you also have to be careful in how you read it. There was actually even a, a chapter that he recommended skipping if you are currently feeling suicidal. And in that chapter, he shared three great writers who wrote about suicide, but sadly all also took their lives, including David Foster Wallace. And he shared some of their writings on uh, suicide, also friends' accounts related to them. But he said because these writers also, they talk about the realness of what it's like to feel suicidal, but because they're such great writers, it it can make it feel poetic or romanticize it, even if that is not their intention. And so there is, of course, concern when we discuss suicide, how to do it in the best way to help prevent suicide, but make sure that we don't in any way induce it. For example, uh, I've read research sharing that when you, in the news or when it's publicized how someone took their life, that can be more likely to contribute to um, people, what we might call a copycat suicide or people um, taking their own lives because of being exposed to that news or being affected by that. And we do see that when there is uh, a suicide put in the media, often, especially in those areas where it happened or if it's just around the world, we're learning about it, it can lead to increases So, uh, in suicide. And so this is why it's such a delicate topic where you want to be careful about. Now, at the same time, uh, he talks about in this book, and this is something that's very important from a, uh, a standpoint of those of you wanting to help someone or wondering how to be of help to someone, is that we often might be afraid to ask about a suicide. If we have a, a friend or a loved one who seems really down and despondent, and if that thought crosses our mind, what if they are suicidal? We often will hesitate to ask because we are afraid, well, what if I plant the seed in their mind? What if they weren't thinking of it, but now that I mention it, that makes them suicidal? And experts in the field, people with experience working with individuals who are suicidal or dealing with mental health issues will let you know that that isn't the case, that you don't have to be concerned that I'm going to introduce the idea to them and then they will go ahead and do it and then I'll feel that burden or that guilt and that I actually uh, contributed to their death. So we have to not be afraid to talk about it and that's why I wanted to read this book and I've talked about this topic many times before because when things are taboo, they don't disappear. They just mean that more people will suffer silently and that more people actually will continue to suffer because often the stigma and the taboo make people feel even worse about what they're dealing with and that might make it more likely they do something that is harmful to themselves or harmful in some way. And that's very true of suicide. So we want to be comfortable talking about it. We, we want to not be afraid of it because the more we fear it, the bigger the problem continues to be. But the more we can actually talk about it, the more likely we are to continue to prevent suicides from happening. And that itself, preventing a suicide, is something that people will often have misconceptions about. Some people say, well, if someone wants to kill themselves, they're going to kill themselves. So there's nothing that can be done. And suicide, like any complex issue, is not just one thing and the same thing every time it shows up. So there can be cases where, yes, at that point, nothing could have been done to stop someone. However, 
in the large majority of cases, people can be helped. One, before they even get to that point that we're talking about where maybe they can't be talked out of it or nothing can be done. Um, but also as they're approaching that point to be supported away from taking their own life. So it's not to add burden or guilt on ourselves when someone we know has committed suicide, but we don't want to also assume there's nothing that could ever be done. There absolutely is. And many people will talk about how someone stopped them from taking their own life. Um, also related to people who have attempted suicide very sadly, sadly in the case of those who end up taking their own lives, often people who have attempted suicide will say as soon as they started the attempt, let's say they jumped, jumped off of a bridge or they took an overdose of pills, very regularly they will say that as soon as they started they regretted it and they wished they hadn't, but it could be too late. And so it's just so heartbreaking to think of those individuals who might have had that feeling, might have had that thought when they began their attempt or once they started it and, and unfortunately could not turn back and could not survive. So, you know, it is such a important topic that I wanted to discuss it. And even as you can see, uh, most of this discussion is related to things that are talked about in the book, but I haven't even got to the book itself because it's a, it's a topic that I take so seriously. It's it's really heartbreaking just as a human being. I'm, I'm a psychologist, and so I deal with people in mental and emotional pain, and suicide is part of that experience. It's not that mental illness and suicide are one and the same, but they're, of course, very connected and interrelated. But just as a human being, when you hear of someone taking their life, it is heartbreaking. It's so sad. And I, I know we've probably all been impacted by either someone we know who has sadly taken their life, or even when we learn of people in the media, artists, individuals who we grow to love in a particular way, taking their own life. It can be incredibly heartbreaking to see that someone that we valued so much or we appreciated so much in some way did not appreciate themselves enough or in the mental anguish and pain they were in found no other way out. Uh, but so sadly, people that many will admire and love won't feel that love for themselves or have some difficulty with that, and that could be part of what contributes to them um, taking their own life. And when I mentioned the, the taboo or the stigma, um, another way that this can function or dysfunction is that when we don't talk about it, when someone goes through it, they can think, I am such a outlier, something is so wrong with me. So we can imagine someone already feels bad about themselves or feels uh, a lot of emotional pain and self-loathing. And now they also think, oh, and look at me, you know, so many people in this world, I have so much going for me and yet I'm feeling this way. It must mean that I'm really crazy and I'm really messed up. If despite all that I have, I'm feeling this way and I'm one of the few that feel this way, maybe the only one, then really I, I maybe do deserve to die. But the truth is that having thoughts of suicide and here i can add this concept that suicidality is on a spectrum meaning that there's a wide range of just even a thought of on one end maybe i wish i wasn't alive or i wouldn't fight so much to survive if i was in some kind of accident something to that nature as opposed to i actually have a plan to 
take my own life and this is what I am going to do and when I'm going to do it. And there's a whole range in between that. So um, just this notion that suicide, if you're thinking of suicide, it means the same thing. There's a huge range of what that can mean. And so even as a mental health professional, we talk about assessing for suicide. It means that someone might bring up something related to suicide, but we really are looking at how seriously is this individual in danger? How likely is it and how much do I feel that they might actually act on some of these suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation that might be currently uh, what they are experiencing? And so uh, there's, again, a range of, of thoughts, feelings related to suicide, but it's very common for people at some point in their life to have some feeling of suicidality that they've experienced. Even I, I've reflected on this many times, and I think at points in my life, I can remember having thoughts related to suicide in my experience when I was feeling much more down. I can say that it's been quite some time, a little bit of time since I remember feeling that way. But when I've felt very depressed, felt very down, suicide has crossed my mind at some level. It has come up. Um, even I've remembered when I've been very depressed, feeling like hitting my head against a wall, this notion of somehow harming yourself. And we often talk about depression or some conceptualizations of depression as some kind of a, a anger towards the self that's turned inward. And so there could be these self-destructive impulses that come up. And I never felt close to acting on it, but I did have the thought there was such a darkness at times that I have experienced in my life that I have that familiarity with it. And so I say that to share my own story, but I also hope it'll encourage others to be more comfortable to share their own, um, one for themselves, because we carry a burden when we uh, carry this type of pain or this feeling about ourselves. And often if we're still in a very dark place, we won't allow people to help us or to get the help that we could very vitally need. Uh, but also when we share it and share it with others, then people can realize if these thoughts ever come to their mind, it doesn't mean something is really wrong with them, that they are crazy, that they are really sick, or that they will ever act on it. They don't necessarily have to contribute to taking any kind of action because of that. So the thoughts are not uncommon. It is a part of the human experience to think about it in some way. It's not something that we uh, only see in a few people. So. I'm looking at the time and I really haven't even gotten into the book. I do want to give the book itself more attention because that's the what, what brought this topic to mind or brought it to the show today. So after the commercial break, I'll talk about the book more specifically and what Clancy Martin shares in this book, How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So now I'll get into the book itself that sparked the topic in the first segment, How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind by Clancy Martin. And as I mentioned in the first segment, he shares a very intimate uh, portrayal of his own life and experience with suicide, both making suicide attempts, which he's made many throughout his life that he shares. Uh, to how just thinking of suicide has been such a big part of his life, starting from early childhood and not something he's ever completely shaken. He 
shares at the end of the book how it's it's less and he's learned more and more how to deal with it in better ways but he doesn't in any way make it seem like he's figured out some secret to never feeling that way again or having those thoughts again one of the last uh, sentences in the book he says maybe i'm starting to learn if not how to live at least how not to kill myself which is part of the the title of the book how not to kill yourself and so he does share these different experiences of his own and then brings in other people's experiences other people who have written and studied suicide suicidal thinking and all matters related to it and shares them throughout the book uh it's it's painful to hear him talk about what he's gone through himself and even trying to understand it and we quickly want to come up with reasons well he was uh, it's genetic it's his family background it's these things and it's likely all of those things but it's also much more complex than that and not something that we can easily put our finger on or easily just solve his whole life he's been trying to deal with this in in different ways from getting help um, as far as therapy medications but also trying to help himself he talks about his long history with alcohol and alcoholism and the benefits he got from AA but he shares that it's not going to be for everyone but it has helped him but even shares the things he likes and dislikes about AA and his experience in it his experiences in in psychiatric wards after often uh, suicide attempts and what that has been like and even at times trying to get out of the hospital because he didn't want to be there and so he does share very vulnerably his his experience and painful experiences in hopes of connecting with others who have their own painful experiences and he shares how people will email him because he's written about suicide before this book in different articles and uh, at times even share that they're going through something and he's trying to help them and so the book is a how not to guide as far as how can we stop ourselves if we're considering suicide and he at the end of the book gets more into some techniques things he's found that will be helpful for him and then at the end of the book there's appendices and in one of the appendix uh, appendix two it talks about interviews with people who uh, have either been suicidal had suicide attempts severe depression and what they do or what advice they have for people and the truth is there isn't one type of solid advice that works for everyone in the sense that everyone should go for a walk or everyone should call a friend those are two things that can be very helpful just for taking care of ourselves in general but also if we're feeling um, more acute mental pain or mental distress but we have to be aware that there's not going to be uh, a recipe that will help everyone and this is a bigger type of conversation related to just health and mental health and self-care and how we take care of ourselves the first step of taking care of anything is awareness of that thing or understanding that so let's say you have a car to take care of the car you either need to check up on all the things and now with modern technology the car itself will let you know alert you when something is not okay low on gas uh, the temperature is too high or whatever is going wrong with the car it has to tell you what's not okay with ourselves we have to become more self-aware and more connected to ourselves physically emotionally mentally what am i going through how do i feel what do i then because of that what do i need how to take care of myself and then responding to that 
it's good to have routines in place of how we take care of ourselves, making sure we have the things in our in our schedule and our routine that we need from sleep to eating the right foods to exercise to socializing to relaxing and resting to doing things we enjoy all sorts of things should be part of our routine and schedule and so first it's important to make sure we include those but at the same time we can't just assume if we have this set routine everything is going to be okay we have to keep checking in with ourselves to see how am i doing do i need more of something do i need to change my routine to make sure i'm okay at this time so self-care first and foremost needs self-awareness i have to see what i need and what i best respond to and even when i make a list of things that help take care of me it'll be different from person to person we can't say everyone do the same thing but he does try to give some of that practical advice of looking for things to live for um one thing that can be very meaningful when it comes to suicide is finding meaning or if we lack meaning that can contribute to feelings of suicidality or not valuing our own life enough and meaning itself is not something that is the same for everyone um, Viktor Frankl talks about in Man's Search for Meaning that it's not a question of that we ask life what is the meaning of life it's the question that life asks of us we each have to find our own meaning of life it's not going to be the same for everyone and so because of that it's something we have to try to to figure out and understand for ourselves uh, but i really appreciated throughout the book his oh, his uh, vulnerability and openness of his own experience you know he talks about rock bottom not being one place at one point when it, he talks about his alcoholism but that there are so many of these experiences that he has that are really harrowing and his own father with his mental illness um, and ending up in a psychiatric hospital where he died he's not sure did he take his own life or not he's not certain about his exact cause of death but he knows he was suffering tremendously as i mentioned before himself trying to deal with his suicidal thinking or thoughts by turning to alcohol or maybe that's not the best way of putting it but alcohol is one um, way that he dealt with things or that came up in his life and that his experience with that and how difficult that was his own divorces and how that might have been related to the drinking or his mental health struggles and then having his children you know also when we look at suicide there's often the sense how could someone do it someone who let's say especially if they have kids or people that care about them and it's it's complex because in a way we can see that there is a selfishness in the act i don't like thinking of it in that way uh, but i can understand that perspective and sometimes people i think get stuck in that how could someone do this to the people that are around them but it's a reminder to the suicidal mind and that's the subtitle of the book a portrait of the suicidal mind when someone is in that state we could say their thinking is not is not right it's not uh, really looking at the full picture when we're feeling pain it, it's so hard for us to see anything other than the pain so when we're hurting, it's hard to imagine not hurting, just like when you're not hurting and you try to imagine the pain. You could try to, but you can't really get what it's like. And so when someone is in this type of mindset, unfortunately, their brain that is feeling the pain is the same brain that's trying to figure things out. And it's seeing just pain and darkness and negativity. This is what people often experience when they're depressed. They feel bad but they also on top of that feel like things won't get better because they can't even imagine better things it just seems like the world is dark they are bad the future is going to continue to be 
bad. And so how could they expect things to be better? So when someone is in that mindset, they have a hard time realizing things can be other than what they are experiencing and feeling. Not only that, when many people share who have either uh, attempted suicide and survived or been close to it, but have not, when they're feeling that way and they have even, let's say, children or loved ones that they know might rely on them or would be, uh, wouldn't be happy if they uh, took their own life, they can often feel like I'm so bad that they'll be better off without me. I am actually hurting them. I'm causing pain for them. So me not existing will be better for them than me existing. It's a wrong calculation. They're not getting it right. But when we are feeling that way, unfortunately, the darkness seems like the only thing that's real and the only thing that we trust. So they often could feel that. So if you've been there, you might have more of a connection to it. But if you haven't, as always, we want to try to have understanding and empathy for what someone might be going through rather than just judging it. So if someone has thought about suicide, someone has attempted suicide, someone has taken their life by suicide, I hope you can have compassion for that individual. One, it is a very common part of the human experience and that many people experience it at different levels and to different degrees, but that also they are someone who is in that moment suffering when they go through that. It's not a moral weakness uh, or a lack of character. It is someone who's experiencing a darkness and in that darkness has a hard time even imagining the light. Um, some final thoughts uh, on this book and this theme um, related to that feeling of things will never get better. Uh, there is a, I think Andrew Solomon mentions this quote in, in his interview section at the end of the book, that suicide is often referred to as a permanent solution to a temporary problem in the sense that death would be a permanent solution and the temporary problem is how you are feeling at that time. And temporary doesn't necessarily mean a momentary feeling. Often someone might be feeling this way for weeks or even months, uh, let's say feeling depressed or feeling down. But nonetheless, no feeling lasts forever or no mood lasts forever. This is something that we try to remind people that there is the feeling that when something hurts so bad and things are so dark and have been for a while, that it'll never get better again. But a reminder that life does change. We do change. Our feelings do change. Even if it feels like it won't and it feels so bad, see if you can hold on just a bit more. Even Clancy Martin in the book shares his own um, experience of thinking at times, I can just kill myself tomorrow, which sounds dark in a way, but it basically is saying, if you're thinking you need to do this thing, okay, well, at least give yourself a little bit more time, think about it or go through some things because it is permanent if you succeed in the sense of taking your own life and you can still have that exit plan later. You don't need to act on it today. Uh, and sometimes that could be a helpful mindset rather than thinking about living so many years, just thinking about surviving today. And he shares that similar to what they teach in AA, that you shouldn't think of, okay, I can never drink the rest of my life. I can never take another sip for the next 60 years, but just think about getting through today because that's all you can do right now. And if you sometimes think of everything all at once, that overwhelming feeling might make you more likely to turn to a behavior or action that won't be helpful for you. So as I mentioned earlier, the book is very heavy because it's talking about a very heavy, in some ways the most heavy 
topic we have when we look at mental health, which is suicide. Uh, I do recommend it strongly for anyone to get a sense of, you know, you maybe have gone through it yourself or just want to understand suicide a bit better. He approaches it from many different angles, many different viewpoints, uh, paints his very own clear, vivid picture of his own experience, but shares the experiences of others and also the insights and thoughts of others. If you are yourself suicidal, I would want you to be cautious or if you've dealt with suicide and when you read a book like this and that so much talk about it can put you in that mindset. Whatever we think about or read about, a lot will stay on our minds, understandably. And so we have to be aware of that. So I wouldn't say uh, avoid it altogether, but being just cautious and aware, as I was talking about before, when we talk about self-awareness uh, and self-care, we have to just check in with ourselves. So if you're reading it and you see that it feels too heavy, and rather than making you feel better, it makes you feel worse at times, you can respect that and appreciate that and give yourself some space. You don't have to think that I have to keep reading it to, to continue. Also, uh, as I'm concluding, just a reminder of suicide hotlines here in the U United States. Um, you can now dial 988, and that is kind of like the mental health version of 911. He has some of these tools at the end of the book. Also, the Na National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 800 273 8255 and just a reminder that there is help out there there are people that care and can care for you and that as dark as it seems it doesn't mean the darkness will last forever no feeling no experience lasts forever and i hope you will decide to live another day because many people will care about you and even our own life is not our own it's really uh, something we've been given and a gift that we share with others because others rely on us they care about us and they'll be devastated if we are gone and so if you need help ask for help and i hope you will live another day let's go to a commercial break we'll be right back welcome back studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 let's go to a caller radio hamra you're on the air good afternoon sir good afternoon thank you for calling you're welcome. Uh, my question, doctor, is uh, how do we make a disobedient person obedient? Well, um, the, the first question is, should they they be obedient to us? Well, let me be more specific. Sure. Uh, this The United States of America and the uh, Biden administration uh, is pushing for a two-state solution in the, in that Middle East. Okay. What what is this? Is this related to obedience or? Yes, yes. Because okay. unfortunately, Prime Minister of Israel is not obedient to the world community. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get into I mean a, a political um, discussion. Because what you mentioned, you know, I always, before I bring anyone on the air, I quickly ask them a question. You said, how do we get a child who is... Um, that is correct. Yeah, so that feels misleading and to me that you then came on and are asking a, a different question. The reason I'm saying a child, because sometimes people are 70 years old and still their child. Yeah. But again, I mean, that does feel misleading to me. That doesn't feel right to me that you would say that before the air. And then come, I, I apologize if that uh, is misleading to you. I, I'll hang up then. No, you don't need to hang up necessarily. It's just that, yeah, that's the part where um, 
you know, as far and even as far as you know, how do we make someone else? And that's why I said at the beginning, we can't make someone just obey us. Uh, that usually doesn't doesn't work. Whether we're talking about a child or in in politics or a political figure, um, we might not like what they do, and that we have to go in with that understanding that, of course, it could be easier, and we have this desire to be able to control things. But in human relationships, whether we're talking one on one or more globally, um, we can't have the expectation that people will do what we want them to do, uh, and that that will work. Now, in a global scale, yeah, we sometimes can ask or make something happen if everyone agrees in a certain way. But um, the expectation that people will do what we want is will be sorely disappointed. What if, Doctor, what if the world community, the UN specifically, and the U.S., is for that solution? Yeah. I'm... The, the person who is in charge of that nation, the Israel, is stiff-necked person. Right, but so if I may ask you, what is your question for me? The question is, how do we make Mr. Netanyahu obedient? Again, I mean, how do we make someone obey? You know, that, and that's the thing, is that when we look at obedience, obedience functions on um, fear, fear of punishment, and, and in international relations, they, they do function in that way. People will do that. But in general, when we focus on obedience... As our goal, we won't be uh, having people do what they actually want to do. So I can agree with you that some of people in power don't do things that are even beneficial for um, their own people. We're seeing that in Iran. Um, but then to then expect them to obey what we want, unfortunately, it doesn't necessarily happen in that way. So I definitely don't have a solution to something like this where it's a a world leader and how do we get them to do what you know you're suggesting is right that that's not something that i'm going to be able to to tell anyone how to make that happen you know th through fear you can get things to happen but in general when we do things from fear and punishment that's a very very last resort and usually doesn't even lead to the best type of outcome cooperation is is what we would want i understand that's easier said than done and you need someone to want to cooperate to make cooperation happen but obedience as a goal is is usually, to me, not the right place to, to be looking. Okay, doctor. All right. Thanks so much. Sure. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. All right. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Hello. You know, we Hello. might... You know, we might... I'm not sure if you're on speaker, speaker because we're getting, because we're getting an echo. echo. I can't really hear your voice very well. Yeah. Solo, solo. I'm sorry. We're pretty. Yeah. Is is the phone on speaker? No, not right now. Okay. Okay. I'm still hear, hearing myself a bit. I'm not sure what it is, creating that echo. Um. Yeah. Uh, we could see how we could try. Maybe when I'm talking, we'll turn down your microphone, and we might have to just talk. Well, you know, obviously one at a time, but um, try to be more uh, not talking over each other. So go ahead. Let me know what your question is. Um, so first of all, I've been dealing with family issues. I am living with my in-laws, my husband. Mm -hmm. And then at first I thought it was just, you know, like my husband, he was just so much into his family that he did not have time for me. He did not care for me much because of his family that he is so much into them. Like he's giving all his time to them and he would just hardly 
okay, he he drives the semi, so he's out for most of the time. And then I thought, you know, he's busy working. And then, you know, if, if ever he calls me, okay, what are you doing? All right, okay, bye, that's it. That's pretty much it. That was our conversation. We literally had no conversation, no emotional attachment. And then just lately, I just find out that he was talking to some other ladies, not just one, but so many. And not just talking, he was, like, having cyber sex. Mm -hmm. And then, like, he just says, okay, there's, he's just sorry, and then, you know, wants to make things right. I don't know how it's to happen. And I am mentally really, like, feeling low. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if uh, that, if you're learning this about him, it's going to um, make you feel low. And, you know, you're saying he wants to work on things. Yes. Infidelity is not, doesn't have to be the end of a relationship, but that's for each person, uh, you know, in each relationship to decide. So that's that's up to you to determine... Well, if you want to work on it and how, and then, you know, make a decision for yourself that if this is something you want to it, continue. It could, have, uh -huh. it could have been easy, but the thing is, I have a son, a responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's just really hard. But his yeah. family, when we found out about this, his family did not really like, you know, they were supporting him all the time. Like, it's not a big deal. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And so this is something where you're you're going to have to trust your own feeling, and it seems very reasonable that you're not okay with him um, talking and having cyber sex with other women when he's married to you and you have a son together, and you definitely do have a responsibility to your son, but that responsibility doesn't necessarily mean only staying together as the, the only option. I'm not suggesting that you should get a divorce, but you, you want to make sure you make a, the best decision for him, which... It's not just black and white of staying together is always the right thing. The relationship itself has to be good or else continuing in a bad relationship might could harm him more in the long term. Yeah, I guess that, but it's a really hard situation yeah. right now. I'm like, I'm, I'm really not feeling myself anymore. I am just lost my appetite, my sleep. I mean... And my body is just shaky all the time. I don't know. Hmm. How how recently did you learn about all this? Okay, first of all, I found out in on the 25th December that he was talking to some girl, but he just covered it up that he was trying to talk to some girl so that he can hook up that girl with his brother who does not know how to talk to girls. Mm -hmm. So he was trying to help his brother. And his brother agreed, and his family was like, yeah, it's not a big deal, it's okay. He's just trying to help out because his brother is trying to get a, you know, find somebody to marry so he can um, migrate here. Okay. But they then were trying to find a girl yeah. for him to migrate here. So what was their conversation like? My husband and the girls. Mm -hmm. I mean, because if he's saying I was just trying to introduce... Yeah, he was try they were trying, they were calling each other baby, oh baby, and audio messages. I did not get to read all of it. I did just read a little bit. He snatched the phone from me and he just 
instantly deleted all the messages. Yeah, I mean, so that doesn't seem okay in multiple ways, even if it is what he's saying. Um, yeah, it was baby, yeah. hey baby, I have fever today, this and that, I mean. Yeah. So, I mean, look, that's that's uh, not being faithful to you, clearly. Um, yeah, but um, he's, okay, so he made an excuse that he was trying to help out his brother, and his family agreed that it's not a big issue, it's okay, you should just, you know. It's fine. He's just, it's not that he's doing something wrong. It's not that he's sleeping with that girl. This is what his family told me. But I could not be convinced. Mm -hmm. So I was still trying to find, you know, find out things. And then just two days ago, nighttime, I actually got his phone and I checked messages and he has been freaking cyber sexing from month he i don't know when he started but i saw messages from month of march with some other girl then differently june july god knows like so it seems pretty pretty clear uh, even that first one let's say it was what they were saying but to begin with you know science people will say well that's not cheating or this is cheating so to make things to me more clear about what is cheating or not or what is being unfaithful it's between the two people and what they agree upon is the code for their relationship or what is okay and not okay so mm -hmm. it's not for other people they can't tell you something is okay or not there's some people that have an open relationship and people can have sexual relationships outside of the marriage and that would not be infidelity because both people are in agreement with it and that's up to them but for other people they don't have that agreement and what's cheating for them is what they decide is okay and not okay so um, even that first conversation that you were describing with that woman doesn't seem okay but especially what you're now describing that he's having cyber sex with many different women um, again most important is how you feel about that and it seems very clear to you that's not something you consider acceptable uh, in your marriage not, definitely it's not loyalty at yeah. all it's like I don't know what I should feel right now is it like I was not able to satisfy him or was it like you know like I don't know that he just broke the trust there is no trust yeah. and the way he was living with me there were times he was just very rude i could not just find out why hmm. well he let just me did not care there was no conversation i tried to teach i you know okay so night times let's talk about husband wife you know how the relationship should be but ours was different like he would come and just be sleeping on the bed and when if there's a time he wants to have sex that's the only time we have sex but there was no conversation or anything well let me you know so now that may be about the relationship itself you're saying there was not much there but specifically about sex and if someone is unfaithful um often the person who finds out that their partner was unfaithful is going to try to figure out well what the heck happened here how can i understand what happened and as humans we're always trying to understand something but especially when something is extremely painful and shocking we want to try to make sense of it and unfortunately a very common place people go is that well maybe i wasn't something is not enough about me either i wasn't doing enough or i'm not enough in some way and that's why this person is, is doing that but it's never acceptable for someone to break that trust so we can't say well even if the, something was about you which it, it definitely does not mean that that's why he did it that's not acceptable but on top of that usually when people have um, relationships outside of their their relationship they are 
unfaithful, it rarely is because the person was not enough. Again, it doesn't make it okay even if that was true, but it's usually not that. It's more complex than that. And of course, well, if something's missing in, let's say, a sexual relationship, we have we have to focus on that one, not just go try to seek it out somewhere else. So I say this so you don't blame yourself that if he was unfaithful, somehow it was your fault, or if he was having these relationships outside of the marriage, you are to blame for it. You know, if you're saying it was December 25th and then you found out more of it later on, it's only been a few weeks, um, you know about it. And when we first learn about uh, infidelity of our partner, it's kind of like a bomb goes off and we're disoriented at first. And I think you're still likely in that you're feeling a lot of emotions, anger, pain, many other things. But you're also a bit uh, disoriented, which is understandable after learning about something so shocking like this. I'm looking at the time we're at a commercial break. I definitely want us to continue the discussion. So after the break, let's talk some more. You know, we could talk about what you're feeling, what's going on and anything that you're you're thinking about doing. Okay, so we'll put you on hold and be back in a few minutes. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with a caller. Let's go back to them now. Radio Ham, are you still there? Yes. Okay. Uh, your voice got so low. It got low. I don't know what it is. Yeah, we're, I'm hearing you okay. I'm not sure what it is. We'll try to turn the levels up a bit, but um, then we get a little bit of echo, unfortunately, when we do that. So we'll try to see how we can figure this out. So before the break, you're sharing about your um, recently learning of your husband talking to many different women. Are you? Yes. Hello. Yes. Sir. yes. Sorry. Are you, everything okay? Yes. Okay. Okay. Um. Everything. You can still continue. Everything's fine. Yes, sir. Okay. Um. So you were sharing what you had recently learned about your husband talking yes. with uh, many different women, and and now. First, just it seems like dealing with it and trying to figure it out. As I was talking about, there's always going to be that desire to try to figure it out. And of course, it makes sense to want to make sense of it. But, mm-hmm. um, and what to do going forward. So, w- where are you at right now as far as what you're thinking and, and doing? I am not able to understand what I am to do. Okay. I feel like he, he doesn't even care about anything. So you've brought this to his attention that you found these other uh, women that he's talking to. It. What was his response? He doesn't have much guilt, honestly. At first, he's just trying to like say, "Oh, that was my past." This is what he replied to me that this is his past. But you're saying I it was. I don't know how it is his past. You're saying it's in the last, like, you know, I think you said last summer, even or maybe last few months. Yes, but, but. If he's hiding that stuff, if I had not found out, it, it was going to be okay for him. It was like nothing happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, when someone is unfaithful, they usually... Sorry? Well, so when someone is being unfaithful, they usually don't want to be caught, at least consciously, we would say. So yeah, he didn't want to, yeah. But so he's saying it's my past, and he, but he didn't want to address it other than that? Yes, it's my past. I have stopped doing all of that. I have already apologized. I'm sorry. 
Okay, so he did. He at one point apologized for this. No, the thing he apologized was uh, so on the day of Christmas. He apologized that he hid the thing from me that he was talking to a girl uh -huh. for his brother. Right. That's the thing he apologized for. That he is sorry that he hid that thing from me that he was talking to a girl. Right. But this is very different from that, right? Definitely. Even, exactly. Yeah. Well, it, uh, this is his response. His reply <laughs> to me is. I already apologized. I am sorry about that. I have stopped all that. Yeah. So clearly he's trying to avoid, uh, you know, any, all of it. First, the any kind of guilt or responsibility or even discussing it, even just saying this general thing that, you know, it's almost like he's saying, I said the word sorry. So that covers anything else that you find out or anything that comes out. So it, it does seem pretty clear that he's not taking your feelings and experience seriously. Yes. The question is going to be, are you going to take your own feelings and experience seriously? The, sorry, say that again? Well, are you going to take your own feelings? If you're not okay with it, what what would you want to then do? That's the thing. I am not able to understand what I should do. How should I move forward with him? Yeah, yeah I mean, for whatever he's doing, yeah. I mean, it's really hard. But... Yeah, I mean, I think what's, it seems at least part of what you're feeling stuck, it's 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 a newer th thing that you just found out about, but that you get the sense for him, he just wants to ignore it and uh, not discuss it at all and just move on. Although yeah. from what you were saying, the relationship itself, well, wh let, let me ask you a different type of question. What's good, maybe it's hard right now when you're so hurt, uh, understandably, about what's going on. What would you say is good about your relationship? Let's say if I asked you a month ago, what would you say is good about your relationship with him? Sorry, sir? What is it that's good about your relationship with him? What's good? Yes. I mean... I don't get it. Like what? In what way? Well, I'm asking you... Okay, so you're in this relationship. Is there anything good about the relationship that you like about him, like about the relationship? Yeah, I mean, I chose him because I liked him. I loved him. Right, but I'm asking you now, what's good in the relationship that, that you... What keeps you in this relationship other than you mentioned you have a son? What is it about the relationship that is good? It's that I, I still love him. Mm -hmm. Well, that and that can make it hurt more at times. There is still that feeling that's of love problem. for... That's the problem, exactly. That's the problem. Yeah. Do you feel loved by him? After seeing, after all that he's done, I don't know what to believe. Hmm. Well, before that, how did, uh, uh, and that's the kind of what I was mentioning before, what, what the good and what good is in the relationship. So how was he making you feel loved before this? It was always like he was always taking side of his parents instead of like, even if I was right in the place, he would still be like dominating. Like, right. You know, take place of his, even if his parents are doing anything wrong, he would just say, like, you know, it's acceptable to him, it's okay. They're elderly people, this is like the mentality of, you know, our yeah. culture. Like, they're elderly people, so you gotta respect them. So, so that, even if you've not done anything wrong, yeah. you have to just apologize, say sorry, and then things will go good. Yeah. Well, I was saying what's, by the way, there's a lot of noise in the background, I don't know what that is. Some metal, cl like, sounds like some metal clanging or something. 
Um, but but th- that's something not good. I'm saying what was what is good in the relationship. I, I still can't get a sense. You're saying you love him, you chose him, but what is it that keeps you in this relationship? You said you love him, but what about him or what about the relationship do you love? I don't know about that right now. Yeah. Well, I'm sure right now it's even harder to think of anything when you're feeling hurt or questioning so much of it. But in, what you were talking about before was not feeling so connected to him in general or feeling that there wasn't much there I, I know you're also saying based on his work he's away a lot of the time i'm sure that has a big impact on that too i'm just trying to get a sense of where the the connection is or what is it that other than the obligation or the, the sense of being because of your son what's keeping you in this relationship mm-hmm. well yeah what is it that's kept you even let's say a month ago if i asked you what do you like about this relationship Hello? Yes, I'm trying. Oh. <laughs> oh, it's hard to come up with something. Got it, yeah. I mean, what kept me being in relationship? Mm-hmm. I mean, for the last few months, we are having ups, you know. I was trying to, you know, talk to him. Okay, we can have some time. Okay, you have to give me time, too. Your all time goes to your family, you know, things like that. But... I don't know. He's like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Just this time, oh, the the life, you know, this. he always gives an excuse that he's been busy. It's hard to make money right now because the trucking business is low. Mm-hmm. It's really down. And then, you know, I was just trying to give him some time. Maybe he'll work out. Things will work out. Yeah. So, I mean, what you're saying, and I guess that long pause was that it was hard to think of what there is. Um, you're sharing a lot of him being closer to his family or you feel like taking their side over you regularly with things. So there are just lots of these ways where you don't have a sense of um, him being on your side and, you know, being with you. And so I, I, I would hope there's something you can do to make this relationship better, but to make a relationship work, you need both people to want to make things work, especially to get over something like infidelity but the way he's responding it seems like he's completely undermining your feelings which you're saying you feel in other ways too like even with his family well you have to take you know he has to take his family side they're elderly you have to just you know um apologize and go with what they say but there's a lot of these ways where i I'm, i guess i was also asking say where is it where you feel like he values you and your feelings and what you're going through because a lot of these I do things i feel that way i do not feel like he even understands it yeah and that's what I was trying to get get at was see what what is there in this relationship. Now you said you chose him, and that's another thing we have to be mindful of. That not that you expected this, but maybe him being distant, something about that um, might have been comfortable for you too, or maybe you chose him even with those kinds of characteristics. In your own family, what did you experience? Let's say with with your parents, especially your experience, uh, your relationship with your father. What was that like? My father? Uh-huh. Or father-in-law? No, your own father. Growing up. Um, about which, about if he knows about all of this? No, no, I'm, I'm asking what is your relationship, what was your relationship like with your father? Um, I have good relationships with my father, actually. Okay. Uh, the reason I was just mentioning trying to understand and wanting you to try like, to uh, not just like fatherly but like a friend as well okay 
the reason I was asking is that you know you said you chose your your husband you know of course and there was love there I don't know if, if he was different or you feel like things have changed but what were those qualities that made you want to be with him that he was okay first of all he obeyed his family so I was like okay if a person is you know he's a family man mm-hmm. you know if he's looking after his family he'll, he's gonna look after me mm-hmm. which is an understandable thought but it seems like his obedience was to the family and not to someone yes. he would marry that but I yeah did not know. right what else what else what other reasons yeah I mean I would hope that if that was the only reason that would not be enough of a reason to marry someone just because they are nice to their family that's good but I would hope there's more that would make you want to be with him yeah the conversations we had we had understanding mm-hmm. you know like it's, that's I think you know a trust and understanding which I don't think I have anymore yeah well, so, you know, the things that you, some of them are expectations that might not have gotten met, but even the things that were there initially don't seem to be there. And then there's this, you know, negative thing of the, the infidelity that, of course, is very significant. And so, as I was saying in the first segment, we only had a few minutes, but just looking at your relationship, you have to evaluate, well, is there something here? Is there something I want to continue? Do I have someone that will want to work on this with me? And then if not, then you, you have to make a decision for yourself of what you think you you should do. But I don't think you should ignore your feelings of being upset about what you've learned about him and what he's been doing. And you need him to take that seriously and not just dismiss it as, uh, you know, this was in the past or I've already said sorry when that's not the case. But that, that's something that if you, you ask him, you can't force him to. But if he's not willing to, you, again, you have to look at what are you okay accepting and not accepting what is okay for you going forward yeah, and if i just i feel like if i just let this slide right now he's just going to dominate in the future things are it could be worse well yeah i mean and that's what i meant before when i said are you you know you feel he's not taking your feelings seriously but will you take your feelings seriously in the sense that okay he's going to just ignore it but are you just going to ignore it yourself because if you do then it could make it that yeah, this is okay, or this is acceptable. I mean, he's saying it's in his past, but you don't get the sense of what happened, why it happened, and what's going on, and mm-hmm. how do we work on this, you know, together in our relationship. Okay. So, I hope you will ask him, you know, more. I get from what you said, you texted him about it, so maybe he's away or working. But there needs no, no, to be. No, when we talked about it, he was here. Okay. And so we talked. Yeah. That was just yesterday when we talked. I see. Okay, and he. And I told his family about it. His sisters, so they talked to him, and then to his sisters, he says, "I am feeling so ashamed right now." Okay. And I am sorry for what I did. Well, I mean, and, and that's that's a good starting point. But I hope he'll share that with you. You know, you'll have that conversation where he shares his his feeling sorry, and you know, with you and trying to work on things and. It's not just yeah, something. How would I? How would I know he's trying to work on things? Oh, I, okay. I, after that thing, he left, and it's whole day and nothing from him. Well, yeah, and that and that itself, you're saying, is not a a, a good sign. And I can get that that you would expect him to show 
some effort. Now, it could be that uh-huh. it's hard for him to face it, hard for him to talk about it, but you're going to need him to, to face it and to talk about it with you. So if he is feeling yeah, bad, I like he told his sisters, we, we need him to show that and share that with you. Uh-huh. Yes, with communication, I'm very open to communicating. But thing is, there are times if I ask him something, he has no answer, he would not speak. Mm-hmm. It's like, I feel like communication is the key, but if he's not willing to do that, how am I supposed to communicate? Sure. Well, yeah, you need two to have a conversation to talk about something and to communicate. So you can bring it up. Now, I would say, um, of course, you're upset about these things, understandably upset. But if you want to have a conversation with him um, and make it more likely to have him participate, you can try your best to bring it up first in a more... I want to talk so we make things better between us. I want us to resolve things. Um, mm-hmm. But still, we can't, you know, that doesn't guarantee that he will give you that that time. But if he doesn't, these are things that you have to really take into account. How can I be with someone or what kind of relationship do we have if we can't even yes. talk about something this significant or he won't talk to me about it? So that's what I meant by if he doesn't take your feelings seriously, you have to make sure you do, which means that. You can't just mm-hmm. ignore it yourself. He's hoping you just ignore it and forget about it and you move on, or at least so yeah. far. Let's give him a chance. Maybe he uh, will, will come and talk about it or will want to. But I just hope that whatever happens, you don't forget that if you're not okay with this and you don't feel right about it, which you uh, understandably don't, that you don't just ignore that yourself. Mm-hmm. But as far as an easy next step for you, I, I wish I had one that's going to be easy because part of it's going to be what is he also going to do but then based on that you have to make your decision which you know could be a variety Sometimes of things i feel like my decision i can't even make decision because you know i get stuck with his family you know they they also try to force well i mean th- it doesn't seem like they're going to be um there's a pressure yeah there exactly is a pressure sure well and that's i mean it seems like you feel that they don't take your feelings into account either so again that's going to be you you won't be doing what they like if you do what you want at times, but this is where, as I was saying, you, you taking your own feelings or what you're going through seriously, they they might not like it. So uh, ideally, you would say this is what I feel or just what I like, and they would be like, great. Let's we agree with you, but it seems that you think they're going to just take their their son's side, your husband's side. So mm-hmm. you have to expect that that that's likely where they'll be coming from, and mm-hmm. it's easier said than done, I know. But I hope you'll still do what what you think is right for you knowing that they might not accept it or approve it and put that pressure on you. Mm-hmm. Is there any, any other question or anywhere you'd like to go? No, I know. I can't think about anything. Yeah, I mean, as I was saying, there's a, a disorientation that you're going to feel. There's a book, I forget the author or maybe it's authors, but it's called After the Affair. You might find it helpful because it's talking about, um, it goes through both sides and also the relationship of, you know, what someone experiences after learning about infidelity in a relationship. So it might be a book you could find helpful. It's called After the Affair. All right. Mm Well, thank you for calling. I'm sorry you find yourself in this situation and, and wish you all the best. Thank you so much, sir. Sure. You're welcome. All right, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. 
uh, you know, some thoughts related to the book I discussed earlier, How Not to Kill Yourself by Clancy Martin. In particular, there was uh, a theme that came up in relation to David Foster Wallace and some of his writings and things that friends said about him that really struck me. And it relates to being authentic or being ourselves and what that means. And this is a big theme in, in mental health, especially in sometimes new age spirituality or um, mental health people discussions that you'll see online or in books about our authentic self and being genuine. And I think it's a very important theme and topic, but I also think that like so much that gets discussed in any format, but especially online, it often gets so simplified into this binary of authentic, inauthentic, genuine, not genuine. And it's much more complex than that. And I've definitely myself talked about this theme a lot, and I'm sure even in earlier years, even more maybe still, talked about in this very clear way, being your authentic self and being your genuine self like this very clear thing when it's much more complicated than that. Not only that, when we sometimes talk about this authentic self, it makes it seem like this static thing, like we find this thing and then that's it, we are that. Where really there isn't a authentic self that's just one thing, when we're being more authentic, and I say it that way and I'll explain more about that, it's that we are responding to each moment in a way that feels more genuine, more authentic. So there isn't a, I'm my authentic self if I do this and that. It's that I'm my authentic self when I respond as I feel is genuine and real to me in that moment to respond. Now, the reason why I said more authentic is that to me, the authenticity or being authentic is more a aspirational goal than something we just attain. And now I'm authentic because it's, it's really complicated to know even what that is to be your authentic self. Uh, this is a exploration in self-awareness where we try to understand where is this coming from? What I'm saying, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling. Um, sometimes we'll talk to ourselves or we might say something and you know, even as a therapist, or you hear people say, well, whose voice is that? And someone might realize, oh, that was, that was the judgmental voice of my father or the judgmental voice of my mother, or this was the, the angry voice of this person in my life. It necessarily wasn't me because we know that we internalize the voices of the, the people around us and also the culture around us and everything really that's around us. But of course, the closer something is and the more we are in contact with it, the more that's going to influence us. And this is where we uh, can really get a sense of what this even means about ourself. Uh, in the book Selfless by Brian Lowry that I covered just a few months ago, I really enjoyed his exploration of trying to understand what is what does this even mean to have a self and this sense of self and recognizing that as much as when I think of myself as me and as this separate thing, there really is no self without other people, without relationships, without the world. The self doesn't exist in a vacuum. And so because of that, the self isn't something that's its own separate unit um, uh, distinct from the world. It is co-created by the person and the world in this interplay that is ongoing. So the self isn't just this thing of we can find this is, this is just you, because what, because what makes you you are things within you, but it's also things that are outside of you and the relationships you have and other factors that go into your 
experience. So when we, we sometimes try to tease apart, okay, what part is just you? It doesn't really exist. And that's something that I was struck by in reading that book um, by Brian Lowry, recognizing how much the self is a construction and a co-construction. And like other social constructions like racism or money, it doesn't mean it's not real or doesn't have huge impacts or race, and which leads to racism. Um, and, and money doesn't mean that it doesn't have a huge impact on individuals and their lives, but it does still mean that it's co-created by society, that it's not something that exists. So that to me was telling, and it, it came up to me in relation to, uh, as I was saying, David Foster Wallace, who was this incredibly talented writer who sadly took his own life uh, and in uh, one of the chapters in the book as I mentioned earlier Clancy Martin goes through three different writers who all wrote a lot about suicide and then all sadly took their lives and, and gives some more insight into their both writings and their experiences and things uh, relevant to this theme and so in the the section about David Foster Wallace there's this thing that he, uh, that David Foster Wallace called the fraudulence paradox, which I believe um, it might appear in this, his most, I think it's his most well-known book, Infinite Jest. But in this fraudulence paradox, what he says is that the more time and effort you put into trying to appear impressive or attractive to other people, the less impressive or attractive you felt inside. You were a fraud. So the more we try to look good to other people, well, even if you look good, internally you don't feel good because you know you are putting on a show or a facade or this is something that's not real. So uh, this is always that sad thing we feel when you put on a mask. If people even like it, you know it's not you or you feel that it's not you and because of that it could still be very heartbreaking. And there's something to that when we're, again, being genuine, being authentic. I think there's it's something real there. There is a there there that you can feel more in touch with yourself and experiencing yourself and expressing yourself. But I do think we find uh, a misconception here or an idealization of it that is unrealistic that then makes people get very sad. And, and the reason why it stood out to me is because here, uh, Adrienne Miller, who was very close to David Foster Wallace, shares some of her thoughts on what she experienced with him. And so she said, David would often say harrowing things to me like, I've never had one honest moment in my life. He'd say that all of his relationships had been fake and that he'd been performing in them. And so what struck me there was that I realized, yeah, there is often this feeling that oh, I'm not really being myself or people don't really know me. But I think it's because we imagine this authentic self or sometimes we say something and we think, well, was that really me? Or I used, you know, a social convention or something that people I've heard someone say. So that means it wasn't me as if there is this you that's unadulterated and has never been touched by anything else and is purely you. And so I think the self, because it's so socially created, contributes to this sense of this um, incongruence or that there's something that's not about me because I can understand that this is just me being affected by things around me. And often great artists like David Foster Wallace are very sensitive, very aware of things, feel things on a deeper level, notice when things are quite not quite right or how they are, can recognize something is off there. So he unfortunately might have felt this 
dissonance or what felt like a dissonance and it felt like, well, this is not me because uh, I sometimes feel this way or I could have said it that way. I don't want to assume I know what was going on in his mind, but I could understand this sense because I felt it myself before of, well, who am I and have I ever been totally me? And that's what I mean by an idealization. I don't think it's really possible or something that can be really ascertained to know, is this person being 100% genuine? What does that even mean to be 100% authentic and genuine in a moment? But then sadly, it can lead to people feeling this way he did, like a fraud, that's, I'm just a fake. And so when you feel that way, you lose either way, because if you're being a fraud and people don't like you, well, of course, you still feel a rejection and, and feel their negativity. Uh, and that doesn't feel good. But then when you were, feel that you're being a fraud and then people even do like you, you feel like, well, it's not even really me. So that doesn't feel good. And that can feel kind of gross. This, oh, they're liking this mask that I'm wearing or this persona that I've put on just to get their approval and their attention. But if they really knew me, they wouldn't like me or they wouldn't love me. And so you lose that way too. So we feel this sense of like, I don't quite know who I am. And am I being authentic? Am I being genuine? You really find yourself uh, in a tough spot. You can't, it's hard to feel good. There's no way to win that. But I think part of what we can recognize is that this sense that I'm being so inauthentic. Yes, we can look and say, I really feel like I'm just saying the things that other people will like, and that doesn't feel so true to me. So there is a, uh, as an aspirational type of a thing, something we go towards, but the sense that I can be sure that this is purely who I am, I think is something that we have to be aware that might be idealized in some ways. And I think unfortunately can lead to us being too hard on ourselves, being, uh, seeing ourselves in a certain way. So I do think we can, uh, as we're, as I was saying, the self-awareness is such a key part of this, try to understand ourselves better. Of course, even through therapy, we get some help, but when we're trying to understand ourselves, we're seeing ourselves from our own vantage point. So there's always going to be biases there, but we could still sense, okay, this feels like something I do a lot, let's say to avoid conflict. And so I could recognize I'm feeling upset, but I didn't tell someone I was upset because I didn't want to avoid, I didn't want the conflict. And then I understand where that's coming from. And so that's something that, yeah, that's an inauthenticity. I'm not being really sharing what I'm feeling. I can get more in touch with that. So I think there's definitely something um, to admire and aspire towards when it comes to being more authentic. But I think we have to be wary of recognizing that this notion that there is this sense of self that is completely unadulterated and purely just me might miss how much our conception of a sense of self comes from other people, relationships, society and culture at large and all of that. And, and that might not feel good, but it's just not possible without it. So it's not a weakness if we're impacted by the people around you, the society and the culture around you. It's part of being human that you're going to, to feel that way and to have that experience. So, uh, you know, it's always heartbreaking when you read the accounts of people who have taken their lives, whether it's um, someone who is an artist or someone who is a celebrity or just someone who was a human being and experiencing life. And so when I read these parts related to David Foster Wallace, it was heartbreaking. And, and then I could totally get this sense of this feeling like a fraud and that sense that so many people can have and some people might feel it deeper than others. But it made me think of this notion that we sometimes think there's this way to get to ourself and be purely that, but maybe that's not possible. And then to be upset or disappointed in ourselves when we don't express something that might not be even really something we can totally get to 
uh, we really just are creating an expectation that will lead to us being disappointed in ourselves um, without really any fault of our own. So let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, good afternoon, Doctor. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for calling. Yes, I've got a question regarding the situation that I'm dealing right now with my family. Okay. Yes, we've been, I've been, we've been separated for almost seven months. And unfortunately, I have three kids, and they've been dealing with anxiety, depression, and I wonder what would be the best approach in order to make it kind of the situation easier for the, for them to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And just so I'm clear, when you say, who has been separated from whom? Uh, my husband and I. Okay, so you and your husband, you have three children together, and what are the age of the kids? Uh, 18, 16, and 14. 18, 16, and 14. Okay, so they're all teenagers. And yeah. um, you're trying, and when you say separated, so are you living still in the same city? What What's the circumstances? Yes, separate, yeah, same city, but separate house. Okay. And is the is this a separation and you're working on the marriage, or it's a separation moving already towards divorce? Mm, yeah, kind of going forward for divorce. Okay. So, you know, the, the the bad news is that divorce is always going to be hard on the kids. And we have to just accept that that is their whole um, desire is to make it less hard. So it's never going to be easy, but make it easier. Uh, and at the same time, be just that notion that it's going to be harder, that fact doesn't necessarily mean it's not the right thing to do. Sometimes staying together can be more harmful to them. And so you make that decision of uh, between two bad things. So... For you, you're pretty. It seems you're saying it's pretty clear that the divorce is happening now. It's like how to minimize the the damage on the kids. Absolutely. Okay. Is there any specific question? I mean, because there's many different um, parts of this that are important. Unfortunately, um, I was working and I got a phone call from the school, and um, I talked to the counselor, and it seems like uh, she. Um, um, my daughter wasn't feeling well, and uh, she talked to my daughter, and she told her that um, she cut herself, and uh, she's depressed, and she has a suicidal thought, and that's the problem as of now. Okay, so... And she pulled her hair, and, and she has anxiety, and... Those stuff that she wants to need to take it out, and actually, I knew about it. And she told um, her therapist about those stuff in the past, and I wasn't aware of that. Okay. So, I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned she's in therapy. That's that's good. Sometimes we might have to increase the the treatment as far as how much therapy, medication at times can be helpful, especially in acute situations. So that's also. Um, a possibility, but you know that she's discussing being suicidal. I, I, I talked a lot about suicide today because of the book. Uh, and one thing I would always encourage any age, but especially parents, is that we take any um, threat or any talk of suicide seriously and that we discuss it directly rather than often we hope it goes away or it's just 
something they said or a thought that they had, but we want to take it seriously and that we want to discuss it with them um, as a conversation, not just say, should we take you to the hospital or not? That can be an option at some point and a necessary one, but there's many steps usually before that. So I hope you'll discuss it uh, with her, with your child. Uh, of course, I, I can imagine the separation is affecting her, but we don't want to just think that's uh, this is just about the separation and something you can do to you know, make the separation different will take away what she's going through. You, you also mentioned cutting, and that's a um, more common than people at times realize that people cut, and cutting can be connected to more serious desires of harm, even suicidality, but it doesn't have to be. Most people who use cutting as a way to, to cope or uh, deal with what their emotions are, are feeling like, they don't actually intend to harm themselves or to kill themselves there's a, a self-harm there but at times it's limited to just that so uh, it's something to be aware of we want to take that seriously too but oftentimes people will he hear that someone is cutting and think that means they must be suicidal or that they are cutting themselves with the intention to do so but it doesn't have to be that they can be very separate types of things um Anything more, you know, I'm also looking at the time. We do have some time, maybe close to 10 minutes, but I want to make sure anything we discuss or open up, we have time to get to some place with. So is there anything specifically you brought up your daughter that you want to, to discuss or get some um, thoughts on? Actually, I, um, I had a, I, my, my older daughter had a bad experience. She committed suicide. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Two years ago, but attempted suicide. Attempted, okay. Ago. And that's the problem it had happened. Uh, she was hospitalized for two weeks in the psychiatric department. Uh, unfortunately, with, with the separation, I think it, it's, it's been overwhelming for yeah. her. She's very attached to her father. She's very close to him. Um, I think it's playing a toll sure. um, on her, and it's been very difficult. I it, didn't know. Yeah. Um, it, is this the same daughter that we're talking about, or you're saying? No, it's okay. the youngest one. Okay, so um, you know, and the, they're obviously. I took her on a vacation. We yeah. went on a vacation. Went to visit our family overseas, and I thought about that would be like to change would help her a little bit, uh, but uh, to change the scenery. But it seems like uh, it's the same. I honestly, I. I really don't know what would be the best approach mm -hmm. right now. I don't. I don't think the therapy would help her um, that much. Well, I, I yeah. The, um, the therapy can be helpful. It doesn't mean it's going to just you know fix things or take it away. So I hope you'll continue that. If especially you you know if you're talking about both your daughters, if they're both in therapy, good. You know they like their therapist and feel that it's helpful to them. Um, at times, yeah, getting school is also is too much for her because she yeah. has to deal with the bullying. I thought that if I take the work off of her, forward, would it be helpful? I, I mean, struggling a lot yeah. in school with the bullies, and it's another issue that always be a concern hmm. for her. Well, I mean, of course, I, but, that's yeah. what I want to ask you. Well, you know, these things, of course, are complex because. The most important thing is their well-being. You know, grades and education are important, but far less important to, uh, you know, how someone is doing and their well-being 
if someone is not doing well emotionally, they won't be able to do well academically. We have to make sure they're okay, and then they can go take care of whatever they need to take care of. Uh, at the same time, we don't want to just, you know, not to say you're reacting, but just take away things that are causing stress immediately because we think they can't handle it because it might be things they need to be able to work through or go through. Um, but as far as exploring options, I think that is important to, if, if really the bullying is significant and you're trying to get her help and it's not, uh, you know, talk to the school and whatever you can to help with that. And if it's still not changing, we do want to be aware of options to help her because, you know, that's not going to be easy for her to, to change how she's feeling if she's being bullied at school. Uh, and then also, I don't know if you said the work, uh, I really have a, a lot of frustration and even anger about how much schoolwork they give to kids now, starting from a young age. And then you see just in high school, um, this extreme amount of work where uh, kids are not getting enough sleep. They're constantly under so much stress. Yeah, it's really, it really uh, drives me crazy because we're hurting our kids so much and thinking we're helping them, you know, uh, become smarter or to grow. But really, uh, we're even taking away the joy of learning at the same time as hurting them physically and mentally with the ways that things are. So I, I, I am very um, upset about that. And so, yeah, if your child is already not feeling good and then feeling that kind of pressure, I could understand you're exploring some different things that might might help or different options. Even I've heard of some, you know, homeschooling or hybrid homeschooling. I don't want to suggest that as a recommendation without knowing more, but just as a possibility, something worth exploring because we just want to make sure your child is okay. All your kids are okay first. Um, the the academics are important, but again, secondary to their, their well-being. It, it does seem like there's some pretty significant mental health issues that are here in the family. Some of it might be genetic as well. Um, also, it could be what they're experiencing and going through. Has the... It's been... Uh, it, it's, it's, unfortunately, it's a story because um, I used to live in California. We moved to another state and that moved in a half my kids it started kind of uh, at the chaos started by moving them mm-hmm. uh, from California to another state which <laughs> I think it was kind of drained them to mm-hmm. the adjustment it wasn't helpful but okay. nonetheless uh, right now um, with the separation um, kind of another time more yeah well what's the how is that how um, how much fighting or how tense is the separation? It's kind of tense, though. It has been tense? Very much. Okay, well, I mean, of course, we want to um, make sure the kids see that, and, you know, your kids are not little, they're teenagers, but still they're the children of this marriage. See that as little as possible, the tension. We definitely don't want to get them involved in any way of taking sides or trying to you know, convince them who's the better one, who's the wrong one, and pull them into this at all. It never helps them. You know, if you are firing bullets at each other, you just hit your kids in between in the war. They don't, they don't, um, you know, get better or feel happier or feel closer to you. You just hurt them. So I'd not, I don't know if you are doing any of that, but I just would strongly encourage you not to try to pull them in in any way. Uh, to the arguments or seeing things a certain way, you know, sometimes I hear... I do, I do understand. Yeah. Because, um, 
is make always to two to tango is not one person. Well, can that's take. true. It's it's true, but, but you know, but you I you can s- do my part. Yeah, exactly. Right. As a, as a as a mother, and I I can do my part, but it has to you know the other party willingly has to participate sure. and help me to be able to achieve the our goal. I I can play my part as a mother to be able to. Um, help them and not to um, take them um, along the way in our battle and save them from this what happening in this uh, chaos sure Uh, uh, yeah and 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 especially with the unfortunately with the time we have we won't get into like what that chaos is and what it's like so I know it's what I'm giving you are generals that are uh, easy to say it, but a lot harder to execute at times. I will say that you're right. It does take two to tango, um, but it also takes two to be in a war. And so if one person is firing and we're not firing back, I can understand it could feel like defeat or that we're giving in, but realizing... Because they live with me. They're okay. here 24 hours. I'm the one who's dealing with the emotion, the pain, and I'm the one who's taking care of them mm-hmm. 24-7. And I'm in this battle with them 24 hours, and I have to take care of them. And I have to myself to have to be healthy to be able to be carried away. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I have to work and be there for them. And if I'm not healthy myself mentally and physically, yeah. I can't endure the pain along the way. That's that's very hard. Also, I can imagine. Things. I mean, I, I feel it in your in your voice. You know, I know we're talking about all these things that are really heavy and sad. So it's probably that too. But it does seem like I, I can imagine you're going through a lot. And I hope, as you because said, I, I, they call me. I was I'm I was in the classroom. I, I was teaching. I just. My phone, I can't even turn it off in the middle of the classroom. I just in the, I'm silent. And I was, I saw the, the beeping, and because it was the, a school calling, and I had to excuse myself, got out of the classroom, and talking, and I excused myself because I ha- I saw the counselor, hmm. and I had to just leave the classroom and cancel my class at the uni, and I said I have to leave. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, I mean that. As I said, you know, any advice I'm giving, especially without knowing more, is very general and um, won't take into account everything you're doing and have already done and what what you're going to through and at what extent. But uh, you know, whatever you can do to take care of yourself is going to be so important in this. Even your own therapy or mental health treatment to make sure you're okay. Because I, I feel a sadness in your voice, and I don't know if you're depressed, but it could it could be a depression that you are going through, and that's going to, of course, impact every aspect of this from how you feel and what you're going through and then how you're going to be there for your kids and how that's going to affect them. So that's always one thing we can do. Um, Of course, we're thinking of taking care of our kids. And so I often will work with people and think, oh, I'm not going to go to my own therapy. I have to make sure my kids are okay. But the more we are okay, the more our kids are okay. So I hope you'll make sure you focus on also yourself and, and, and getting through this the best way you can, because that allow you to be there for your kids in even a better way because they're going to feel your mood and where you're at. So you can't fake that. You can't just um, pretend to be something you're not. But if you can take care of yourself, that that can be very helpful in this. Oh, um, what would be the best option as of now for her besides the therapy to help her to get through? Uh, with this 
happening? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I mean, therapy, you know, you can consider um, medication, as I was saying before, but also I think it's important that you, you know, talk to her about what's, ask her what she thinks will help her and what she's going through. I do get the sense that understandably you're feeling overwhelmed yourself with everything that's going on. And so, you know, her feelings and what she's going through um, can be tough to even talk about with her to really get into, but I hope you'll keep giving her that space to share that she's not okay. She might continue to not be okay. And we want to help her get as, as okay as she can, but recognize that she probably won't feel, there's nothing we can do that's going to make her feel good tomorrow or make her feel a lot better very soon. It's going to be a long process. Um, and I'm hearing in your voice this this overwhelmed feeling, which is why I was suggesting also taking care of yourself more. Um, but as far as for her, ask her what would be helpful if she's open to seeing a psychiatrist, if you're finding out about these feelings that she's having, some of them um, having talks with her about the, them, showing her it's okay for her to feel whatever she's feeling, you're there for her, you you want to give her that space to, to feel whatever it is that she is and, and help her to help you help her to so find out what can be better for her, whether that is um, going to a different therapist if she says this one is not, seeking medication, seeking other kinds of treatment. You know, I do have to, to wrap up the show. I'm looking at the time, sure, actually. No problem. No, I, and so I wish we could talk more. Time. Maybe we could it. talk another another time longer. If you can sure. come on earlier, that would be great because I would want to talk to you more because there's a lot that's going on here. Um, no so, problem. No, but hopefully we can you. continue thank the conversation another time. Yeah, bye. thank you. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. A, a big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Olakwi, Zan Zendigi Azadi. Thank you.